Welcome to the People's School for Marxism-Leninism Studies. The day Today is December 12th, 2023, and today we will be doing a class on the Soviet Union's um, ideology towards the Israel-Palestine conflict, as well as other Communist Party stances on the Israel-Palestine issue. Yeah, I want to welcome everybody. It's an important class tonight, and I think it's... Uh... You're going to find it interesting. It's an analysis that most people on the left don't have. They completely misrepresent or don't know the position of the socialist countries, especially the Soviet Union and the Eastern European countries, towards the issue of um, Palestine and Israel. So hopefully this class will shed some light on that. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Um, and we will now bring up the presentation for tonight. So what we'll be learning tonight is the USSR's stance on Palestine before 1948. We'll have then a separate section on the Soviet Union and the Arab-Jewish question and the two-state solution. And then finally, the Soviet Union stance in the Middle East after 1948. We'll have a brief discussion question, uh, period between each section, and we will get going from here. So our first section will be the Soviet Union on the two-state solution. Our first section will be a pamphlet that was put out by Alexander Bittleman. For those who do not know, the author Alexander Bittleman is a member of the National Committee of the CPUSA, the General Secretary of the Morning Freiheit Association, and an editor of the Marxist Monthly Political Affairs. He also was the author of numerous pamphlets and brochures and is widely known and esteemed as a leader of the Jewish people. So the pamphlet we'll first be basing off is a report delivered by Mr. Bittleman to an enlarged meeting of the National Jewish Commission of the Communist Party, the old CPUSA, on December 12th, 1947. So on Palestine... The decision to establish two independent and democratic states in Palestine, a Jewish and an Arab state, is an event of great historic significance. This decision has laid, laid the basis for a democratic solution in the interest of both peoples for world peace and democracy. This decision is primarily due to the efforts of the Soviet Union, the new democracy of Poland, and to the agreement between the Soviet Union and the United States. For the Jewish people, this decision is a historic step towards the realization of a dream of centuries. It signifies that the progressive forces of the world, headed by the Soviet Union, are actively promoting the realization of the national aspirations of large sections of the Jewish people to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. But we must also recognize that, while the U.S.-United States support was one of the decisive factors... In this decision, American policy may yet prove a serious obstacle to the implementation and realization of that decision. American policy yet may yet become an obstacle to the establishment of an independent Jewish state free of all foreign imperialist domination. American policy seriously interferes with the ability of the Jewish state to become truly democratic and to follow a consistent policy of peace and collaboration with the Arab state. For American support of the United Nations partition plan is motivated, in addition to internal political considerations, by the inter-imperialist rivalries between the United States and Great Britain for control and influence in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean. In that region, as in other parts of the world, 
Wall Street is trying to create economic, political, and military basis to be used against the full independence and development of the projected Jewish and Arab states and against the whole anti-imperialist camp headed by the Soviet Union. American imperialism will try to make the Jewish state its puppet and to exploit and oppress the Jewish people in the interests of Wall Street. American and British imperialism together will try to intensify and prolong friction between Arabs and Jews and to obstruct the economic unity and political cooperation of the two states. Encouraged by the maneuvers of British and American imperialism, the Arab reactionaries and the pro-fascist Mufti group are inciting Arab-Jewish conflict and preparing for prolonged hostilities against the Jewish people in Palestine in order to obstruct and force a reconsideration of the United Nations decision. Reactionary Zionist circles in Palestine, continuing their nationalist chauvinist policies towards the Arab people, are making the work of the Arab reactionaries and of imperialism so much easier. Obstacles are thus being multiplied to make the implementation of the United Nations decision more difficult. We must therefore demand and fight for the quickest possible implementation of the United Nations decisions. We must demand that the Security Council of the United States Nations, excuse me, take full charge of the Palestinian situation and assume direct responsibility for implementing the decision of the General Assembly. That the Security Council call upon the British administration in Palestine to cease interfering with and hampering the defense actions of the Jewish community. That the Security Council call upon all member nations to take all necessary measures and to prevent shipments of arms and munitions from their respective countries to those Arab groups and countries that are attacking the Jewish community and are fighting against the Palestine decision of the United Nations. That the Security Council take all necessary measures to arm the Jewish community with respect will carry on its defense actions under the supervision of the Security Council. We must demand of the American government the immediate lifting of the embargo upon the shipment of arms to the Jewish Yeshiv. To summarize our main analysis and conclusions, the historical decision of the United Nations on Palestine became possible in the present period because of the following factors. First, the existence, vitality, and just national demands of the Jewish community in Palestine, which is growing into nationhood and becoming an important political factor in the Near East. Secondly, the favorable international situation. But we must distinguish between two qualitatively different components of the favorable international situation. The first component is the tremendously increased moral and political authority of the Soviet Union in world affairs due to its decisive part in defeating the fascist enemy in the war. And together with this, the rise of the new democracies of Europe and of the general strength of the anti-imperialist camp. In the United Nations, this camp, headed by the Soviet Union, has played a decisive part in the decision for a Jewish state. The other component is the great weakening of British imperialism. The increased strength of American imperialism, the rivalry between them, as well as their desire to combine against the real independence of the Arabs and Jews and against the anti-imperialist camp headed by the Soviet Union. These factors plus internal political considerations produced the United States' acceptance of the Soviet compromise offer for the setting up of two new states in Palestine. We must keep these facts clearly before the eyes of our people. Only then will they fully realize who are the real friends of the projected Jewish state and of the Jewish people in general. Only then will the masses of our people understand fully the new dangers now threatening the realization of the Jewish state, the dangers coming from American and British imperialism. And with that, we will break for a discussion.
It's a very, very important statement. Today is what? December 12th. This is about 60 or 70 years ago. Is that correct? Today, right. today's date. Listen to what he was warning. He was warning that U.S. imperialism was going to try to take advantage of the state of Israel. He says it right there. Talk about prophecy. This guy who was in the leadership of the party and in a Jewish newspaper, Yiddish, called the Freyheit, and on the Central Committee, he was warning that we need to do this at that time to stop the main imperialism before World War II. What was the main imperialism? It was British imperialism. That was the main imperialism on the West. On the East, we had uh, Germany and others. And Germany and Japan, they were the main imperialists. That's why this is important. Um, a lot of people are trying to hide this information from you. It's amazing how they're doing it. And what reason they have, I don't know. But it was qualitative. The Soviet Union originally called for a one-state solution. You should all know that. And the Arab states refused to go along with that. They refused. They said it. Therefore, the Soviets then, in order to have world peace, the Soviets then said, we're going to call for a two-state solution. And they were the ones who pushed it in the Security Council. I just want to bring that up to everybody. Thank you. So if I'm hearing this correctly, would it be um, safe to say that the Soviet Union was the leading force in the creation of the State of Israel? Yeah, that would be correct. That would be correct. And the reason they gave was to stop U.S. Uh, British imperialism in that part of the world. That was the main reason. And it wasn't just the Soviet Union. It was also the socialist countries of Czechoslovakia, Poland. All those countries gave aid. Remember that. That's not, And that's important that we know that. Let's not erase that. Thank you. Given the history of the USSR and it coming out of Tsarist Russia, which was called the Prison House of Nation, the Prison Prison House of Nations, um, how come the the one state idea was the first that the Soviet Union put forward, rather than the two state? Uh, I think it should be obvious. Our main ideology says that workers have everything in common and we have nothing in common with the bosses. So whether you're Jewish, whether you're Arab, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're straight or gay, it doesn't matter, old or young. If you're a member of the working class, that's what matters. That's what we have in common. So that's the reason why they push that. That was also the position, by the way, in Poland and in other countries of Europe. You all know that different ethnic centric uh, groups wanted to rip Poland apart and separate it. Uh, and that, the position was the same. The Polish communist government had the same position. It's really, it's simple. But the Soviet uh, leadership uh, under, uh, was very, very uh, smart. They said, if we can't do this because they're fighting uh, with each other, let's just create 
uh, two separate states. Now, where did you hear that recently? I'll tell you where I heard it. I couldn't believe he was saying it. Scott Ritter. If you heard Scott Ritter's review, he said exactly the same thing that the Soviets said uh, 70 years ago. This is Scott's it. He said one state would be preferable, but right now they're at each other's throats. We have to separate and create two states, two equal states that work in a federation with each other. That's what Scott Ritter said. Go to his his recordings. Thank you. I would also recommend looking at um, Stalin's 1913's works, Marxism and the National Question, um, especially his section where he goes against the Jewish Bund uh, party at the time is a wonderful read on that as well. Hello, comrades. So um, I want to give a little historical context in this whole situation. So uh, we all know that um, for 50 years, uh, the Soviet Union um, uh, was opposed to Zionism uh, since 1897, the creation of political Zionism uh, until 1947. But what happened? Okay, so uh, in uh, 1939, the British came to the conclusion that you couldn't have a partition of Palestine and uh, they stopped the Jewish immigration to Palestine because too many problems, too many riots and all of that. Okay, so the, the Jewish agency uh, fought the British big time during World War II and right after World War II. And um, of course, Stalin considered the British Empire to be a main enemy really, even more than the US at the time, you know. So, um, the position, original position of the USSR, as uh, stated in, in the foreign ministry, was the creation of a single multinational state in Palestine, and that uh, the immigration of Jews from Europe to Palestine was not a good thing, but uh, the liberation of the, I mean, the, uh, it, it should be solved with the end, the uh, eradication of fascism. 90 seconds of fascism uh, of the European, not immigration of Jews to Palestine. Okay, so they had this policy in early March 47 uh, in a memorandum from the foreign ministry. But then two weeks later, Truman began the Cold War. He made a speech to the Congress in the US uh, and he began the Cold War. He fired the first shot. So it would be another two months and Gromyko totally changed his position in order to fight the British Empire, to, to put a nail in the coffin in Palestine, uh, because he saw a collusion between Truman and Churchill, not Churchill, but the government of the uh, UK at the time, um, to continue the presence in Palestine. So he said, since the Jewish agency is opposed to the British, let's go with them. 230. Uh, they proposed the partition of Palestine. Gromyko did in May 47 was approved in November 47 by the UN. So USSR was uh, at the ori origin of the partition, but their position first wasn't that. They opposed it. They just, they just changed for geopolitical reason at the time. It was a tactical move, that's all. Oh yeah, so on that, um, the UN resolution, uh, there was one nation that abstained and that was 
the United Kingdoms. They abstained from voting for that. Um, you know, their goal was to take over the entire mandate Palestine to keep it under British rule. And we'll see in the um, Biltmore um, Agreement uh, in 1953 that it was also to create basically a Jewish state under British rule. Um, another thing that I found in this um, research um, from a great website, you may have heard of them, uh, ujpfo.org has some um, magazines called Jewish Life that they uh, had published. And this one, I think, was in 1951. I'll put it in the chat now. And there's a really interesting, um, I guess it's like a testimony of the um, Israeli communist um, general secretary at the time um, talking about how the communists were the ones that were defending the Israeli state in it to existence. So look, look for that article there. I think it's called Israeli Liberation and the Communists. Uh, it's, it's a very fascinating testimony. He was, they were put, he was put on trial. So I put that in the chat. Uh, that's it for now. Is it a myth that the Palestinians invited the des uh, diaspora Jews to live there? Did they expect them to to fight so often that they needed like two different states? Did what's true, what's not true, and what was supposed to happen? Thank you. If anybody knows, I don't think it was any. I don't think anybody had the democracy to invite anybody. It was all done by the superpowers. Everything was done by the superpowers. The the um, the knowledge of the people living there, whether they were Palestinian, Arab, or um, the Jews that were born there, not the ones that came, but the Jews that, they didn't ask them anything. They just decided on the whole thing. So nobody was inviting uh, nobody. I don't know if I answered your question. Everything was done by the superpowers, those that lost or won the war in World War II. And everything was done for tactical reasons. That's correct. It was all done for tactics. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I know it was, was it in 1917 or 1918 that it was the Bolsheviks that revealed the Balfour Declaration? Um, does anyone know why they did that and what was the impact that it had? Yes, comrade. Uh, the Bolshevik did not reveal the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was a letter from the, um, he was not the prime minister, he was the foreign secretary, Balfour, to Lord Rothschild saying, yeah, we want to have a um, Jewish state in Palestine. Bolshevik has nothing to do with it. But uh, interestingly, though, uh, at the time, Churchill said that uh, Zionist is our best card regarding the Bolshevik revolution because uh, we want to keep the Jews, the Russian Jews, away from Lenin and put them into Zionism. So he, he made that statement, Churchill, in November 1917, at the time of the uh, Bolshevik revolution. Hopefully in the future, we could do a people's school on Turkey, the modern founding of Turkey, Ataturk, because this is, you know, a junk adjacent to Palestine almost. Uh, the Soviet Union, you know who they, they did support in that region? It was Ataturk and this modern Turkey, a secular Turkey. It was the Soviet Union. And then the British ended up supporting Ataturk as well to try to supersede the Soviets. Um, but that'll be its own people's school class in the future. Very interesting. 
uh, relationship between the Soviet Union and Turkey. Yeah, class on Turkey would be an interesting in the future. Speaking of contradictory positions that the Soviet Union held, so we're speaking about the Soviet Union having contradictory positions on Israel, but uh, Chris Bovey mentioned Turkey. And what's ironic is that even though the Soviet Union supported Ataturk, they, every single Soviet Congress that, that was ever held had a motion which was always passed, which we always reaffirmed in independent Kurdistan every single time, which is a lot of people don't know. So the Soviet Union, they had a policy of, on one hand, supporting every single Arab nationalist movement. They supported Assad. They supported Nasser. They supported Gaddafi. They kind of supported Saddam Hussein for a brief moment. They supported the FLN but then and the PLO. But then at the same time, they supported the PKK. They supported all the Kurdish groups, which were anti-Arab nationalists. And then the Soviet Union, a lot of people don't know this, they supported the Lahid which was not a left-wing Zionist group. That was Abram Stern's group. Abram Stern's group had just previously collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. But the reason they supported Abram Stern is because Abram Stern and the Lahi, they went from being a fascist group to a national Bolshevik group in order to get Soviet money. And also, this is a common theme throughout Africa as well, where the Soviets just gave money to anyone who would call themselves Marxist. My point is that the Soviet Union, because of their internationalist foreign policy, tried to develop relations with any and every liberation movement they could where at times they developed relations with on one hand Turk, and on another hand with the kurds or on one hand with arab nationalists and on another hand with like ultra zionists so my point is that the soviet policy was yes anti-imperialist and, and completely internationalist but it led to contradictions like these thank you israel has had its problems with settler colonialism which is a bit more of a Maoist perspective on it, but I just wanted to ask, what's the difference between the way that Israel was set up and, say, the way that America was set up? They both have their problems with solar colonialism, but that's not why Israel was set up. So, yeah, I guess that's my question is, what's the difference between uh, Israel and America, if you're comparing them as like settler colonies. Thank you. Yeah, we've put a really good old Soviet film, one of the ones from the, the Berkeley College collection from the original Soviet friendship group, which, Angelo, if you could repeat the name later, I think it was like American Soviet Friendship Society or something like that. Uh, it was about a Soviet Jew. The National Council of American Soviet Friendship, which U.S. Friends of the Soviet People continues that tradition. And the film you're talking about was a film produced in the 70s, which has nothing to do with this, but it was produced in the 70s. And it was produced, the Soviet government showed how the Zionist movement in Israel was trying to lure Soviet Jews to go to Israel and settle on the land that was just taken from the um, Arabs. In 1967, there was a war. They took all this land. Now they wanted to put Jewish settlements there. That's what you're talking about. That has nothing to do with the, tonight's thing, but it's a side oh. thing. What does have to do with tonight's thing is Berbajan. That has everything to do with this. 
the Soviets showed that you can have you can have a Jewish state that does not oppress the other people living in that area. That was called Bera Bajan. That's exactly what it was. It was Jewish state, Jewish traditions, Jewish music, everything. But it was not Zionist. And that's interesting because Scott Ritter said recently, I heard him say it last week, that because of what's going on now, that if Israel wants to exist, it's going to have to change the way it operates. It can no longer act as a Zionist state. 90 seconds. It can continue to act as a Jewish state, but not a Zionist state. That was Scott Ritter saying it. Thank you. Um, I hope you listen to this carefully because there were words here that were very clear that the people that were trying to stop the arms to is to the people fighting for a, a homeland, the Jewish people, was the West. Did you all hear that? There was an embargo on all arms to the Jewish people that were living there, torment those that were living there, by the British Empire. Most people don't know this. You ask anybody, they don't know this. It's right there. Um, I suggest you look at a pro-Zionist movie that was made in the 50s, but it had some interesting facts in it. It was called Exodus. A star was Paul Newman. Um, Paul, he was an actor. He was a liberal, politically. But it was a famous movie. I think it was Cecil B. DeMille's. I could be wrong on that. But, uh, I just want you to know that that shows what was going on. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, after World War II... <laughs> A really good example of a state that had like a two-state solution. It was actually maybe three. Was a Czechoslovakia, um, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia uh, as one country as a federal republic, along with Bohemia and Moravia. But it was a successful solution that worked um, until the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, just an example. Yeah, I think it's important that the enemy of the time when this was going on was British imperialism. That was the aim. Took it, you heard what the author wrote. Wall Street. That was American imperialism. That's all. Thank you. Uh, yeah, um, so personally, I'm just an atheist. and I'm just trying to understand some of this. So this, I apologize in advance if this sounds like a real stupid question, but um, I sort of need to know why do the uh, Jewish people sort of feel entitled to making a state in the middle of Palestine and why they can't just join with the Palestinians? And that's basically my question. Um, there are no stupid questions, comrade. Never think that there is. Um, so do remember that around this time there was one the end of the great patriotic war second the soviet union had been already made a homeland for the jewish people within birobijan since the mid 30s 
And as well, there was, with the end of the Great Patriotic War, there were power struggles going on between the imperialist camp and the anti-imperialist camp. And there is this is all an ideological struggle, as well as some could also say a tactical struggle for because the Soviet Union stands for the self-determination of people. But especially in one area, you can't suddenly just say, well, let's have one state and you all get together. Um, as we'll go on a little later, the Soviet Union did want a one state solution, but because of differences in people's opinion of how this would work and also pushback from other people on the Security Council. The idea instead was a two-state, two separate independent states with economic integration, and then eventually, as perhaps like the way of Yugoslavia or another federation, they're federated together, but we'll be going over that some more. Yeah, so I want to point out that William Foster, he wrote a book called History of the Communist Party, USA, Angelo knows what I'm talking about. He wrote a book back in 1952. And in the book, there's a part where he says that it was necessary for the party at the time in 1947 to support the partition plan. However, he said, this is his direct line. However, mistakes were made and traces of bourgeois nationalism entered our party at that time. There was a strong labor Zionist faction that emerged within the Communist Party USA because the Communist Party USA saw supporting the, the, the partition as a matter of tactics rather than as a matter of ideology. And you have to understand that a lot of labor Zionists joined the CP around the time of 47 and 48, and almost all of them left the party in 67. So that's basically... What happened there? Even Gus Hall, Angelo just told me today about how Gus Hall even talked about how even after the 67 war, you had a faction with a small but prevalent faction within CPUSA that had traces of bourgeois nationalism when it came to the question of Israel. In other words, they were more loyal to the project of Israel than they were to the project of international socialism. A lot of and as far as the Israeli Communist Party is concerned, the Israeli Communist Party. Let me just, I'll finish. The Israeli Labor Party and the Israeli Communist Party, the Israeli Labor Party being the Labor Zionists, were two totally separate projects. The Israeli Communist Party never advocated Zionism. They advocated a non-Zionist solution that would eventually become a federation, like Nick said. Thank you. Yeah, my comment was actually on another part of the, the class earlier when we talked about British imperialism. As we look at works that we study, probably almost all of them typically ring true that they could have been written yesterday. Occasionally, there's certain things that are historic, especially when it relates to historic things. And at this time, yeah, British imperialism was a factor, as it still is today. And something which will be its own class, perhaps in the future, but a discussion that is said by many in Europe, including communists, is they say the colonizers have been colonized. So that's my question is, has United States conquered British imperialism? Thank you for your question. I would almost more say personally that we inherited it and then we will 
whether if we either give that up next or someone else takes it or we go kicking and screaming while another world emerges who can say probably the latter but that's my opinion good evening comrades so israel is zionism zionism is israel for 50 years from 1897 to 1947 the communist movement worldwide has fought against Zionism. The idea of Zionism is that world Jews are one nation without a homeland. And they will find this homeland in Palestine. The position of communists is Jews belong to nations, many hundreds of nations. And the solution to the problem is not to take all the Jews of the world and take them to Palestine, but to democratize society and ultimately to bring socialism. Because of course, you're gonna have a Jewish bourgeoisie and a Jewish proletariat. So socialism will solve everything. Okay, so why is it that in 47, the USSR played the Zionist card at the United Nations in May 47, when just two months earlier, they said, the ultimate solution is one single multinational state. In other words, Palestine will have Arabs, Christians, and Jews all living together. That is the solution they wanted. But two months later, they changed and they uh, proposed a partition of Palestine, which was approved later on in November. Well, what happened is the beginning of the Cold War March 12, 1947, Truman's speech before the US Congress when he fired the first shot of the Cold War. And then Stalin thought, we got a problem here. We got US imperialism, British imperialism that's forming a block against us. We got to do something. And as Stalin always does, he does uh, real politics like he did with Two the minutes, Soviet Pact of 1939. So he made a temporary alliance with Zionism against British imperialism. That is what happened in 1947. We have to understand that the one thing that bothered Stalin uh, up front was the fact that there was a British mandate in Palestine for 30 years. Uh, at the end of uh, World War I, Palestine was given to Britain. And the one thing that um, uh, Stalin was doing to try was to try to be one of the three powers that got on the peace table because he the first thing he wanted and this was his strategy he wanted the British out period what happened was when he and Roosevelt were talking both Roosevelt and he wanted a Arab slash Palestine state where they both uh, it was just one state where they were uh, working together. He even, Stalin, even held that view after um, uh, Roosevelt died. And that was his first position when he was finally getting into the um, United Nations Security Council. And after the um, Truman speech, he realized that uh, the Americans were more of a problem than the British. And that's when he said, okay, then we're going to throw it to the Security Council and let them decide. 
And that was his way of maneuvering away the power from the British and now the American uh, um, vantage who wanted to really continue to have a, 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 what do you call it, receivership. U.S. and Britain were battling to get another mandate going in Palestine. And then, um, what do you call it, Stalin threw a curve and says, well, as this cannot be resolved and the Arabs are against a two states, uh, against uh, an Israeli state, throw it into the Security Council. And Stalin got his wish. The British and the Americans no longer had a mandate. That's all. I notice a lot of people, when they talk about history, use the glasses that they have now to go back to a period of time. Excuse me. And try to analyze that period of time. We use, we call it usually historians calling using 20, 20, 24 glasses for a period for something that happened in 1915. You don't do that. That's so incorrect. Let's not look at the world as we see it today. Let's look at the world as it was seen at that time. And at that time, Stalin and the communist movement had an analysis. I don't think we should look at it from today and say, oh, that analysis was incorrect. It was fantasy. No, it was not fantasy. It was reality at that time. Today, as we look back at it, we're looking back in today's reality, trying to apply that to what happened uh, 40, 50, 80, 90 years ago. We can't do that. You Six, know that that's not, that's not what a historian does. You have to go back to that period. And remember what the world did for the first time, what happened in 45. Concentration camps were liberated, many of them by the Russians. And they were opened up and they saw now what really was going on. Before that, they had no idea. They had assumptions. The world at that time looked at the situation different than the world does now. At On the issue of the concentration camps. So the Jews were viewed, rightly or wrongly, in today's world, they were viewed at the time as victims of fascism and that they needed security. So let's go back to that time, please. Let's not do anything to service to history. Thank you. Our second section is going to be more on the ideological stance of the Soviet Union towards the Israel-Palestine issue and of the two-state solution. So certain ideological questions regarding Zionism. Recent events with regard, remember this was written in 1947. At the end of 1947, recent events with regard to Palestine have once again brought to the fore certain ideological questions on Zionism. It has been asserted that communist support for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine became possible only through a departure from Marxism on the Jewish question and the consequent adoption of the Zionist ideas. Some Zionist leaders welcome this departure from Marxism because they hold that Marxism is thereby weakened and Zionism strengthened. At the same time, certain Marxists too disapprove this departure because they too believe that it weakens Marxism and strengthens Zionism. This misconception 
was advanced, especially by certain Zionist writers following the famous Gromyko speech to the United Nations in May 1947, which proposed the establishment of one dual Jewish Arab state in Palestine, or if this should prove impossible, the consideration of establishing two separate independent and democratic states. In this declaration of Soviet policy, Gromyko, according to certain Zionists, was supposed to have abandoned the Marxist position on the national and Jewish question. In November 1946, the Communist Party issued a resolution on Jewish work, which clearly demonstrated that the communists fight for a Jewish national home and for Jewish statehood flows inevitably from the application of Marxist national policy to the concrete conditions of Palestine in the present period. Our position, of course, differed from the Zionist conception of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. We could not accept the Biltmore Program, which denied the legitimate national rights of the Arabs subordinating the Arabs to the Jews. While top Zionist officials down to the last moment opposed turning the Palestine question over to the United Nations, we had thoroughly insisted that a democratic solution was impossible without recourse to the United Nations. Furthermore, we could not agree with the Zionists that the achievement of a Jewish state in Palestine would solve the Jewish question as a whole and for all countries. Our conception of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine is based on the Marxist principle of the right of self-determination and equality of all nations. And I'll just pivot to the right there. So that's the Biltmore Conference, which was done in New York, also known as its resolution as the Biltmore Program was a fundamental departure from traditional Zionist policy by its demands the Palestine be established as a Jewish commonwealth. The meeting was held in New York City in prestigious Biltmore Hotel on May 9th to May 11th, 1942. Okay, as Marxists, as irreconcilable enemies of imperialism and national oppression, we fought for the fulfillment of Jewish national aspirations, its statehood in collaboration with the Arab people of Palestine with full respect for their equal national rights. This represents a Marxist approach as developed by Comrade Lenin and Stalin. Such an approach is incompatible with the bourgeois nationalist ideology of Zionism. For Marxists hold that the final complete and permanent solution of the Jewish question will be attained only under socialism on the basis of the principles formulated by Lenin and Stalin and as developed in the Soviet Union's solution of the nationals, national question. And that was a resolution on the Jewish question and political affairs, November 1946. And now we get to Barabajan. The policy of developing Jewish statehood in Barabajan bears directly and intimately on whether or not Marxism is compatible with Jewish statehood. And allow me to quote from my article, not mine, but Bittman's, Bittleman's, with this question in July 1947. 
and that was in the political affairs, which he stated, when the Soviet government promulgated in 1934 the famous decree for establishing Berebizhan as the Jewish autonomous region, Kalinin explained that the purpose was to create a Jewish state unit. And a Jewish state, there it is. And there it is again, and there's its pretty cool flag in the autonomous region. And it's all the way down there on the right. Uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish statehood for the economic and cultural development of a Jewish nationality. Not only did this constitute no departure from Marxism, but on the contrary, it was the development of Marxism applied to the solution of the Jewish question in the concrete circumstances of the Soviet Union. It follows inevitably from Stalin's and from the entire Marxist-Leninist policy of the Soviet government on this question. And further, this proves, so coming from his article, conclusively that there is no contradiction in principle between Marxism and the idea of a Jewish state. It also proves that Marxists brought forth and supported the idea of a Jewish state when the objective conditions became ripe for it, when progressive forces had made their appearance on the historic stage, interested in capable of realizing the aspirations of large sections of the Jewish people for a Jewish state. This is what happened in the Soviet Union with regard to Berbizhan. This is what prompted Marxists in the recent period to raise the question of Jewish statehood and of Jewish state in Palestine. So some people still labor under the misapprehension that Lenin and Stalin opposed a Jewish state in principle and that they shared the opportunist and bourgeois nationalist views of the social democratic Jewish boon in old Russia on this question. And nothing can be farther from the truth. To quote again from the same article, it was Stalin in his polemics with the boon in 1913 and other writings who insisted and demonstrated scientifically that a people cannot live a normal and full national life and cannot be a single nation if it does not have a common territory, one national economy, language, and culture. Stalin was speaking about the Jewish people, and this meant two things. First, the Jewish people cannot act as a single nation, and much as they may desire it. But second, in the absence of a Jewish community anywhere on earth, growing into nationhood, the Zionist policies for a Jewish state at that time in 1913 were not only utopian, but profoundly reactionary since no progressive forces of any sort were then present in the objective situation interested in and capable of realizing the dream of a Jewish state. And it is still true today that Zionist conception that the Jews of all lands constitute one single nation is of bourgeois nationalist character. So as we know, conditions did make it necessary to decide in favor of a two separate states. The projected separate states were, of course, entirely different from the many partition schemes contemplated by British and American imperialism. And so the United Nations plan called for two independent democratic states with economic unity between them. And it is important to realize that the major responsibility for the further deterioration of Arab-Jewish relations between the historic Gromyko Declaration in May and the United Nations decision in December 
1947, rests with British and American imperialism, effectively aided by Arab and Jewish reactionaries inside and outside of Palestine. It also should be noted that the democratic and anti-imperialist forces among both the Jews and Arabs bear their own responsibility for the inadequate struggle for Arab-Jewish unity and for a dual democratic Arab-Jewish state of two equal peoples. And so our party resolution on Jewish work stated that a major task in the struggle for independence of Palestine is the joint Arab-Jewish fight supported by all progressive and anti-imperialist forces against the British and Anglo-American imperialist schemes for the partition of Palestine or for some fraudulent independence maneuver similar to the one in Transjordan based upon collaboration with imperialism of the Jewish and Arab reactionary forces. And that came from his article. And it is now even clearer than ever that Marx's opposition to the imperialist schemes for partition of Palestine and for a United Nations solution was correct. And now we can break. We will now break for a second round of discussion. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry I had technical difficulties earlier. I had to go out of the meeting and come back in, but uh, I apologize if I missed this, if this was covered, but from what I understand, uh, Stalin supported the creation of Israel primarily because the Arab states at that time were pro-British. They were largely a result of the British partitioning of the former Ottoman Empire. Um, and because they were pro-British, he supported them, and he thought that they could be a bulwark against the British imperialism in that region. But then later on, uh, it, Israel turned against the Soviet Union under Golda Meir, apparently, or, well, because Golda Meir went to the Soviet Union and tried to get them to agree to have all of the Soviet Jews move to Israel, and they said no. And so after that point, Israel turned towards the U.S. And, of course, the Arab countries moved towards the Soviet Union. But that's my understanding from what I've read, at least. Thank you, Comrade. Um, Comrade Angelo, would you like to respond? Yeah, I want to admit, the Arab world was not homogenous. They did not all have the same view. There were groups that was beginning to break away from the colonialism of the West. Chief among them was Egypt under Abil Nasser. And they were very much in favor against the British and um, also um, for Soviet help in um, uplifting their economy. So and Syria was also very, very pro-Soviet, not British. So it's not really correct to say that the Arab world was pro-British. They were divided. And they were divided along the lines of the National Liberation Movement. There were those leaders that wanted to be part of British imperialism and those that fought it. That's a really clearer understanding. And... Um, that was a key thing. You're correct on that. It was key, the attitude towards 
British imperialism. The idea of the Brits was to stay in Palestine, as Alexander Biddleman mentions in his book, um, who was who was representing us. Biddleman was a communist, uh, big time, pro-Stalin. Um, and he says it very clearly to what we all knew at the seconds. time, that Stalin wanted to get rid of British imperialism in that part of the world. And therefore, they would join forces like they did in World War II. They joined forces with all kinds of people to get rid of fascism in Europe. It's a tactic. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Um, another thing I would like to say as well, it was another tactic that there was also strategics where at the time, um, for a real politic perspective, um, Stalin saw the British imperialism as one of the biggest threats because after the first World War, the Brits had basically moved into some of the old colonial territories and strengthened their own. And so they were looking to move back then because one thing you could say about Churchill was he was a definite imperialist that wanted to preserve the empire as much as possible. So one tactical thing that they had was they called for a termination of the British mandate. And if you remember back to the Biltmore program, it they wanted a Jewish commonwealth which would have been a puppet of the Brit of British imperialism. Um, so if for the Soviet Union, they wanted a single independent democratic Palestine where everyone had equal national democratic rights. Um, and then if that could not um, be put forth, it was instead the two separate states with economic unity. And eventually they kind of merge into a federation and go for a state that way. So I just wanted to ask if the Soviets had a place to live like uh, Birobidzhan, why is that something that is so completely ignored amongst pretty much most of the world uh, in regards to a Jewish homeland? Is it purely just off the fact that it's the Soviets and the communists and the idea just doesn't sit well with a lot of people? And uh, cause I've always heard a lot of people say that, the Soviets, they just ended up sending all the Jews to Siberia. That's That was their idea. Is that pretty much just uh, the reasoning behind it, just a anti-communist talking point? The Jewish population of Berbizhan, I, I think, uh, and it's still true today, it's like 22% of that population of, of that autonomous region. And it still exists. Most Soviet Jews lived in the cities that they grew up in. They they saw them as Soviet Soviet Jews. However, they had the option to go to that autonomous region and develop it as a Jewish state. And so, yes, it is completely just fabricated uh, anti-communist um, BS that uh, we need to keep uh, bring to the awareness to people. Um, and yeah, that's that's my conclusion, at least. Yeah, and uh, also with the Biltmore program, uh, how is that different from the traditional Zionist program? Um, so there's some debate, and we'll definitely go more into the Biltmore program when we do our future class on Zionism. Um, but if you look at like the Wikipedia article, it basically said the Biltmore Declaration was kind of a departure from what they coined the so-called moderate Zionist policies. But um, basically, the Biltmore 
called for a national ethnic Jewish state as called the Jewish Commonwealth, um, but it was backed by the British. It was the Zionist movement that, and the fact that they really wanted Palestine. So that is why Berbajan was really overlooked. It's not what the Zionists want. And um, they became a world movement, became quite popular. So everybody, uh, you know, they were telling people it, it happened to the to the um, Russian Jews too, that they were compelled and were what do you call it, sort of misled to immigrate to Palestine, which of course was uh, really a wreck at that time in 1948. But uh, yeah, it was just the Zionists that kept uh, people from uh, thinking about Berbajan as, as their own homeland. That's all. Zionism, as we should know as Marxist-Leninists, is a religion of the boss. He tells the workers, you don't have to strike against me. I'm on your side. I, I, have, I celebrate Hanukkah like you do. I celebrate Passover. I have the Sabbath. Why are you striking against me? That's the ultimate of Zionism. It's a class ideology. They would never accept a Jewish state that is run by socialists. Think about that. So that's why the whole world completely ne neglected Berbajan. But I want you to know that there were movements at the time I came across literature in every country of the world, there was a pro-Berbajan movement started. And it had the word AA in front of it. I don't know why. There must have been a reason. It's, Am it's Amber Berbajan. If you know what I'm talking about, anybody, you can join me along. If you Google it, you'll see what I'm saying. And their job was to collect money. And we had one in this country. They took advertisements out in Jewish Life magazine and in the newspapers at the time, the bourgeois papers. Their job was to collect money to send it back to Berbajan so that they can develop the, that area. 90 seconds. And that's all I wanted to say. In my opinion, personal opinion, Berbajan was the first Jewish state uh, set up outside of Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed it in a long time ago, when the Romans came in and destroyed the, the Jewish state. Berbajan was the first one since then. And the Soviets were all happy to help develop that. Two minutes. I want you to know that. Thank you. Yes, uh, about uh, Berbajan, okay, uh, there's one thing that... Um, uh, push Stalin to um, to to, in, to set up this uh, it, autonomous region in Siberia is the fact that only three percent or so of the Jewish uh, of the Jewish Russians were engaged in agriculture, and the reason for that is because for centuries they were kept out of either productive work in uh, in, in agriculture or in factories uh, and just do small uh, small businesses and shops, tradesmen, right? In the Pale of Settlement, which is Ukraine, 
Western uh, uh, Belorussia, Poland, and Western Russia, right? So he he thought it would be a great idea to have the Jewish Russians go to that place in Siberia and begin agriculture. That was very important uh, in his mind uh, at the time, and that's that's uh, one of the reasons. I think the term was like beyond the pale, where you know, if you were Jewish in Tsarist Russia, you weren't allowed to be in certain uh, cities. And that was basically to, um, you know, control the Jews. Um, and they were forced into, uh, it was a hard life, but they were forced into kind of like a uh, finding some sort of work um, in the cities. And yes, so there were very few Jews that actually were peasants. And so uh, Stalin saw that um, as some way to, um, to create some more development for um, in that area for the Jews, but as well to, you know, emphasize what was said on the question of self-determination on the national question and the Jewish question. Um, it was at that time when um, we could create a Jewish state in Soviet Russia. We could not create it in Tsarist Russia because all the Jews were forced into the cities. They weren't allowed to have their own state. It was impossible. Same that goes with Israel in Palestine, in mandated Palestine. You couldn't have an Israeli state unless you had Jews in that area. And yes, it was the Zionists that basically cultivated um, the Jews. Um, I think they called the Yeshuvs uh, settlers at the time. Um, but it was also uh, the, you know, the Jewish uh, people that were there. And that's what the analysis was for um the Communist Party at the time for both places, Palestine and Soviet Russia on the seconds. Jewish question. And once again, you still cannot. And, and Mark says this, too. You cannot complete the Jewish question until you have socialism. It will never happen. Um, the liberation of the Jews will not happen until you have socialism. That's all. Um, one quick note. You used the word Yezhov, which does refer to. Um, Jewish settlers who were in the area of Palestine before 1948, be they had grown up there for generations or they happened to immigrate to the area before 1948. Thank you. Comrade Angelo, you have a Yeah, point. I have to correct something uh, to Comrade that was just mentioned. Listen carefully. Everything I tell you, you Google to see if what I'm saying is correct. The way I understand the history, the famous saying is beyond the pale. What does that mean? That meant that Jews could not go to the cities. Opposite of what you were saying, comrades. The Jews could not go to the cities. That was called beyond the pale. They had to stay in the countryside. The life of the Jews was identical to the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Watch that movie. I saw it two nights ago. It's very correct. That's how the Jews had to live in Tsarist Russia, in little villages called shettles, to Yiddish word, shettles, and they could not intermarry with non-Jews. It was not a look favorably upon it. Very similar to blacks and whites during the uh, 20s. They was not looked at uh, mingling with each other favorably. So beyond the pale is the term. The Russian Revolution changed that in 1917. They created affirmative action programs. I said that in another meeting. Now Jews were pushed to the front in the universities. 
Where are the universities? They're in cities. So now Jews were sent to the cities to go to the universities, and now they were given preference, just the way African-Americans were given preference during the 70s, during the affirmative action period in this country. 90 seconds. All right? So I just want to correct that to everybody. Um, the Fiddler on the Roof was the life. And if you watch that movie, they were chased out by the czarist government. And I said to myself, this looks like what the Palestinians are going through now. Every so often the government comes in, the Israeli government tells them, you got to move, you got to move, you got to move, you got to move. Two minutes. That's what they went through. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so um, I think that it's also important to note that after Stalin, um, after, you know, the United Nations uh, resolution passed and they went ahead with the establishment of the creation of the state of Israel. Um, I believe that Stalin, correct me if I'm wrong, Stalin regretted the decision um, or came out and against it afterwards and kind of denounced Zionism after he after what happened kind of in the aftermath of all of that. Oh, uh, and then just the other thing I wanted to add is that, um, you know, if you look at uh, Hamas's official position they're calling for what that was the two-state solution with the unity that that's exactly what their position is today so they're trying to kind of go back to the original plan in a way so that's all i had to say the last statement that the comrade said is correct 2017 hamas changed their position they're now calling for a two-state solution they're no longer calling for the destruction of israel people forget that so they changed their position uh that's correct the first uh, allegation is not true. It has never, no one has ever seen that in print because there is no printed version of that. Stalin never, ever uh, changed his view. He died uh, a few years later and he never had the opportunity to change his view if he did uh, feel differently. It hasn't been documented anywhere. So let's just get that straight. Let's not put wishful thinking on anything. Let's deal with the facts as they are. Thank you. Uh, I guess two things now. First thing, briefly, with Karma's question, uh, the Soviet Union and communists have always opposed Zionism. Um, but at the same time, they support the creation of Israel. So you have to distinguish between those two things. We always spoke out against Zionism, but we did support the creation of Israel, on the other hand. Uh, the second thing is... I had a question about Birabajan. As I understand it, it has always been a Jewish minority area. Jewish people have never been the majority there. So I wonder what exactly makes or made Birabajan a Jewish state. What provisions were there or what was set up to actually make it a Jewish state within the Soviet Union? Yeah, can I answer that? Uh, I did a lot, of, a lot of research on that. The language, the official language, was Russian and Yiddish, number one. Number two, all the street signs were in Yiddish and Russian. Number three, the communications, the newspapers, the radio station, was both in those two languages. It was based on culture, uh, Yiddish culture, basically. And that's what made it, um, it was considered a Jewish state, not a Zionist state. And to verify that, that there are some people who say 
oh, you cannot be a Jewish state. You must be Zionist. It's the same thing. No, it's not. Let's be real about that. Uh, even um, recently, um, it's, this guy, Scott Ritter, came out with this whole thing on interviews saying the same thing that the Soviet Union said in 1947-48. You, you need to have a Jewish state, but not a Zionist state. And there's a difference. A state that oppresses the people that are on their territory. Berbajan did not do that. They lived peaceably. Even though they were only a small percentage, the Jews, they were in a, 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 a position of authority. Um, Israel, since 48, has basically uh, lent itself to Zionist thinking, and they have become an oppressor of the people in that country who are not Jewish. That's obvious. Uh, that was just the beginning of it. Now it's much worse. So the idea of having a Jewish state that is not Zionist is possible. Berbizhan is an example of that. Thank you. On part of your question, um, it was around the late 1920s, uh, March 28th, 1928, that the Presidium of the General Executive Committee of the USSR passed decree on for setting up the um, Birobijan Autonomous Region. Um, yeah, at the risk of, I guess just what I'm wondering is, by this same logic, would we support the creations of Romani, Zoroastrian, and or Wiccan states? I would say that would definitely depend on conditions, and if was there an area that had a concentration of them that could constitute a nation and were the material conditions necessary at the time. Um, it's kind of an abstract question. Um, I would recommend looking at uh, the 1913 work of Stalin on the national question. He explains the idea of what is a nation and establishing a nation very well. Um, did that answer your question, comrade? Did that uh, yes, that, that did. And I would also like to know with a Jewish state specifically, why would it have to be in Palestine and not somewhere in Europe? So again, with the establish, it again all depends on the material circumstances where there are people and are there, is there an area of concentration where a nation can be established? So, like it, the readings that said earlier in 1934, there was the conditions that were necessarily necessary inside the Soviet Union for the establishment of a Jewish autonomous state as a Jewish homeland there. And again, in 1947, with the end of the Great Patriotic War, conditions had changed within that region as well. Um, though an interesting note, some of the ultra-Zionist groups, um, one of their areas they had wanted to establish a Jewish homeland was in Uganda, of all places. Um, so for some of them, there was really no up down right rhyme of where they wanted to establish this so okay so there's two things i want to point out one of them is about the jewish autonomous oblast and then the other is about israel itself when angelo says a jewish state and not a zionist state that's kind of what the jewish autonomous oblast was the difference between the jewish autonomous oblast and israel is that the jewish autonomous oblast was not its own country it was a part of a federal USSR. And the irony 
is that even though this pamphlet denounces the Bund, the idea of a Jewish autonomous oblast is what the Bund's program called for, which their program stated autonomy within Europe, Jewish autonomy within Europe was their program, which is basically what the Soviet Union gave them. Now, if anyone knows the talk show host, Dennis Prager, you want to know how he got his start? By There's this thing in the 70s called Soviet anti-Semitism. Angelo knows what I'm talking about. There's this whole accusation that the Soviet Union was keeping Jews inside and preventing them from immigrating to Israel after Israel had stolen Sinai from Egypt. And this whole charge of Soviet anti-Semitism, even under the, during the McCarthy period. 60 seconds. During the McCarthy period, the Holocaust was never talked about, except for in the context of denouncing Stalin, saying he would do a second one, right? So there's a deep connection between Zionism and and McCarthyism in the U.S., and that's where that comes from. Now, I, will, I do want to pose a question to everyone here, and that is, if Israel, if Israel, started out with a Bolshevik slash left-wing government, like with uh, Mapai or with the Israeli Labor Party. And now it has the Likud. If Israel was so easily willing to betray their own socialist origins, doesn't that say something about the Zionist project? Doesn't that say something that labor Zionism was never meant to last? That's my question. Thank you. Yes, comrade. So I want to answer to comrade about Stalin and did he regret uh, the, um, uh, to support Zionism for a short period? The answer is actually yes. So what happened is this. Stalin was a great tactician, a master of dialectics. So what he did uh, in 1947 is similar to what he did in 1939 when he made a pact of non-aggression with Germany for tactical reason, obviously. He did the same in 47 in May, uh, to fight the British Empire. Okay, it was a short-lived honeymoon. It was a marriage of convenience. And it ended at the end of 1948. And there is this article by Ilya Ehrenberg, a famous Ilya Ehrenberg, a Soviet Jewish author. The first one, he was a journalist that was following the Red Army. He's the first one that got into a concentration camp with the Red Army and he announced to the world the Holocaust. It was Ilya Ehrenberg. So in September 48, he wrote an article, and that article was approved by Stalin, where he denounced Zionism. And shortly after, Stalin uh, started a campaign against Zionism in the USSR uh, that lasted until uh, he finally broke off relations with Israel in uh, 1950s. So there was a short honeymoon from 47 to 49, basically, for a year and a half, okay? And uh, that's what happened with Stalin and Zionism. Yeah, um, Berbatian is very interesting, and I think we should probably pursue that more. I, I have noticed a couple of articles that, uh, you know, 2023, all of a sudden they're talking about this. The thing here is that Zionism, Zionism was big, and um, Chaim, I guess, Wiseman, uh, he was trying to get all the Jews everywhere to settle into Palestine, one, to be a majority. And they did a huge propaganda uh, process about, you know, come here, you know, the grapes are falling off the trees and yada, yada, yada. 
Um, and so I feel that that also diverted a lot of Russian Jews from going to Berbijan and then trying to go to Israel. So I think, you know, now we're talking about 2019, 2022. Uh, I think it'd be absolutely interesting to start looking at Berbijan and seeing what is happening there. And I do, for, in some degree, uh, um, agree with uh, the fact that Stalin wasn't stupid. He wanted to get, you got to remember, he wanted to get that British slash USA mandate trusteeship out of Palestine. That was his, what do you call it, uh, pain for a good, what, 30, 40 years. And he was bound and determined to make that happen. And that's why when he realized he could not no longer um, support Roosevelt's dream, okay, to support Roosevelt's dream, that he became um, tactical. So I don't think he, as as Christian said, it was a marriage of convenience. I don't think, uh, what do you call it, uh, Stalin regretted the decision. He knew exactly what to expect. That's all. Um, so right now we will go back to the slides and presentations, if we could bring that back up. Um, so our final section tonight is going to be on the Soviet um, perception and also relationships with the Middle East after 1948. So keep in mind by this time, there's been a lot of things that have been going on within two decades for our next reading here. And I'll read this part. So we're going to be covering um, a pamphlet, a section of a pamphlet from Hyman Loomer. Hyman Loomer was the National Educational Director of the Communist Party of the old CPUSA and the editor of the magazines Political Affairs and Jewish Affairs. And in 1973, he wrote a pamphlet called Zion, a book called Zionism, Its Role in World Politics. And we're going to be reading a section from that. So again, the Soviet Union is on the side of the forces of political and economic independence in the Middle East. And it is precisely for this reason that its policies are anathema to the forces of oil imperialism and their supporters. The attitude of the Soviet Union towards Israel is equally clear. Not only was it instrumental in bringing about the establishment of the state of Israel, it also supplied the newborn state with arms in defense of its independence. And since 1948, the Soviet Union has firmly upheld the rights of all states in the Middle East. It has opposed not Israel's right to exist, but the aggressive policies of its leaders. This was made plain by Soviet Premier Kolsijins in his speech before the UN General Assembly on June 19, 1967. He said, The Soviet Union is not against Israel. It is against the aggressive policy pursued by the ruling circles of that state. In the course of its 50-year history, the Soviet Union has regarded all peoples, large or small, with respect. Every people enjoys the right to establish an independent national state of its own. This constitutes one of the fundamental principles of the policy of the Soviet Union. It is on this basis that we formulated our attitude to Israel as a state when we voted in 1947 for the UN decision to create two independent states, a Jewish and an Arab one, in the territory of the former British colony of Palestine. Guided by this fundamental policy, 
The Soviet Union was later to establish diplomatic relations with Israel. While upholding the rights of peoples to self-determination, the Soviet Union just as resolutely condemns the attempts of it by any state to conduct an aggressive policy towards other countries, a policy of seizure of foreign lands and subjugation of the people living there. Soviet condemnation of Israeli aggression has been sharp indeed, but we maintain it has been fully warranted. And in its stand, the Soviet Union has performed a service in the cause of peace. Nor <clears throat> have its efforts for peace been one-sided. It has worked also to restrain threats to peace from the Arab side, as even Zionist spokesmen have felt obligated to admit. Thus, at the annual policy conference of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee in early 1967, a panel of experts discussed the Soviet role in the Middle East. Israel Horizons, February 1967, reports their conclusions as follows. These men were in full accord that Russia did not want a war and would do everything possible to prevent one and would step in very quickly to stop it if one developed. Moscow is evidently making this clear to the Arabs themselves, and especially to Syria. These words are almost prophetic. The Soviet Union did in fact do everything to avert war in the Middle East in the only way it could be averted, by exposing and combating the aggressive policies of the Israeli ruling circles, as well as by seeking to prevail on certain forces within the Arab countries to exercise restraint. In the explosive situation on the eve of the 1967 war, the Soviet ambassadors in Cairo and Tel Aviv, called Nasser and Ershkol, respectively, in the small hours of the morning to obtain assurances from each that his side would not be the first to fire the first shot. And when war broke out, nevertheless, a war which served the interest of neither the Arab nor the Israeli peoples, but only those of imperialism, the Soviet Union made every effort to bring it to the quickest possible end, pressing for an immediate ceasefire. The danger of war in the Middle East persists, thanks to the annexationist policies of Israel's rulers in league with U.S. imperialism. The chief roadblock to peace is the adamant refusal of the Israeli government to commit itself to withdrawn from the conquered territories in keeping with the UN Security Council Resolution of, 196, of November 1967. Insistence on retaining these territories leads not to peace, not to security for the Israeli people, but to mounting hostility and the ever-present threat of the flare-up of full-scale warfare with all its deadly implications. The road to peace lies only in abandonment of this policy in accepting the UN resolution in its totality as Egypt, Jordan, and Syria have already done. The Soviet Union stands in the forefront of those who press for Israel's acceptance of the resolution and abandonment of its expansionist policy. In doing so, it continues to work for peace in the Middle East and for the best interests of all its people, Jews and Arabs alike. And with that, we will break for our final discussion round. The last couple of slides really point to the fact that here we are 50 years later. I mean, we could cut and paste and it's still relevance. And that is extremely sad. Uh, and actually, I'm sure it's worse than it was even 50 years ago. So it, it was just a feeling I had that this could have been written yesterday. So 
Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I have to I have to say something that uh, has been basically glided over. It wasn't even mentioned, and even uh, talk about forty eight uh, the war. It just mentions like uh, the Soviet Union, you know, like uh, gave some arms. It, it really doesn't go into it deeply. There's something that goes beyond even ideology, uh, and, and and sometimes you have to go beyond ideology and 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 look at a situation. During World War II, and there's something that a lot of people don't remember, but Stalin remembered very well. Most of the Arab populations in North Africa and Palestine were vehemently pro-German. They supported the Nazis, uh, and they were against the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. In 1942, the Grand Mufti of Palestine went to Berlin and stood next to Hitler and reviewed the troops while the German people, I mean, while the Soviet people were being slaughtered to the tune of 20 to 25 million. He stood and reviewed the troops and they gave their allegiance. That was one of the big reasons behind Stalin's wanting a Jewish state there because most of the Jewish people in Europe uh either were very pro-Soviet or or were accepted the Soviet Union as one of the uh, reasons that uh, they were not, uh, you know, totally destroyed. And uh, Stalin trusted the people that would form the Soviet Union to be uh, an ally of the Soviet Union, accept the Soviet Union. Uh, even the 1949 the ambassador to the United Nations of, of the new state of Israel made a speech in where he said he felt honored to sit on this honored institution uh, alongside the United States and the Soviet Union. One mm -hmm. other thing I want to say, too, about 1948. 1948, the United States, the greatest uh, uh, imperialist power at that time, became imperialist power and Britain sent no arms and had an arms embargo. Virtually the only arms that came in, uh, all the Arab populations around, all the countries around Israel, basically declared war immediately upon the declaration of, of Israel being a state. And they were pretty much uh, certain to destroy the uh, Israeli state very fast. Yeah, I, I want to add that 1948, uh, which is called the War of Independence for Israel, is called the catastrophe by the Palestinians, the Nakba. That is when 750,000 Palestinians were cleansed, just like they're doing now in Gaza. So, um, you know, there's two sides to the coin here, right? That's all. Comrade General Secretary Angelo, you have the floor. Yeah. Uh, also, put in your memory banks. Um, there were three people that signed the Declaration of Independence of Israel in 1948. Three. Out of the whole country. All those people. Three. They represented the three key people in that area. One of the three one of the three was named Mayor Vilna. It's right there on the declaration. Who was Mayor Vilna? 
He was the general secretary of the Communist Party of Israel. So that's important to know that. That three people signed that declaration. You know, ours, we had Ben Franklin. We had, what, 19 people uh, sign ours. There was only three that signed that declaration. And that was signed by the communist, Mayor Vilna. That's important to know. Also in Israel, you should all know this, they took an area of sand and they planted trees and they made it a forest. You know what it's called? The Red Army Forest. It's still there today. The Red Army Forest. It was made deliberately in honor of the Red Army in World War II. So these are things that you should all know. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Um, just really quickly looking up some information on Mir Vilner. Um, he actually publicized the Israeli nuclear weapons program in 1963, imposed martial rule, uh, the imposition of martial rule on Israeli Arabs that was imposed in 1949, lifted in 1966. Um, he actually uh, opposed perestroika and regarded the fall of communism in the USSR as a coup and was also in 1978 awarded the Order of Friendship of Peoples. Very interesting history. Yeah, I uh, I think that Loomer's, Loomer's comments are really very interesting because it shows that uh, the whole policy was, uh, was a disaster, that you establish this state and the state carries out the aggressive policies towards towards the Arabs in the area. Um, and uh, and there is an excellent article by a professor, I believe he's at Tel Aviv, um, uh, Gabriel uh, Dorodetsky, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, who shows that the Soviet leaders were manipulated and duped by the Zionist leadership during this whole period uh, of the formation of, uh, of Israel during that period. And, uh, and then, you know, Heimer Luhmann shows the consequences of that, which is that this state, which, which was that this state then oppresses its neighbors and oppresses the people in its borders and the disastrous situation that we're in today. It's not an accident. This is the direct result of supporting a Zionist state. Uh, no, whether you call it a Jewish state or an Irish state, it's going to have the same, it's going to have the same uh, uh, results. So uh, uh, I just want to mention that. I find it interesting that some people do not understand the, the communist view that says if a state is has policies that are apartheid or has policies that are detrimental to its neighbors, then that state has no right to exist because of some settler connection. I give you the example and analyze it yourselves of South Africa. You had the Boers and the English come into an area of Africa that was traditionally held by black Africans. They set up a state there. It was called South Africa. The state was apartheid and persecuted the native peoples there, the blacks. 
So what did communists do? Did they call for the destruction of South Africa? Think about this. Or did they say we need to change the policies? 60 seconds. Of the, of the government of South Africa. Get rid of that government and have a government that is not uh, practice those policies. And that and it was a settler state very similar to what happened in Palestine. So remember that we are not radicals, comrades. We are communists. We have a different analysis. Thank you. Comrade Angelo mentioned South Africa. I did want to mention that. Um, and I so I'll that we don't have to mention that. But this when Lumer was referring to the 1967 war, this war, the, I guess like the Six Day War, they say this is when America focuses on selling weapons directly to Israel, like the Skyhawk uh, missiles or whatnot. And this is where you see America giving like its full attention to the Israel, Israeli uh, military. Um, at the same time, America was sending its weapons to Arab states as well in Saudi Arabia and in the Jordan state uh, next uh, to Israel. We mentioned earlier in, the, in an earlier section that there was an idea of this dubious independent Transjordan uh, state that would be controlled um, uh, with Britain rule. And that would be with the Heshemites, of, like, the uh, like the monarchies that were in Jordan. And they basically controlled Palestine uh, during like uh, before the 1967 war itself. And that's when Israel took over and, and occupied it. So, you know, this we could go into a lot of detail, but I mean, I just want you to remember what uh, national self-determination is in on Marxist Leninism. And I think that uh, will put you in the right direction. 90 point seconds. You in the right direction. And I'm done. What's going on, comrades? So I like the example used of uh, South Africa. You know, that helped clarify things uh, some because, you know, that, you know, revolutionized with the help of uh, the leadership of Nelson Mandela and so on and so forth. Um, but then the example I wanted to use, uh, and again, I, I still understand the two state solution thing with Palestine, Israel, but the example I want to use was like, wasn't most of the world not recognizing Rhodesia? Like, what, what's the difference of like the Rhodesian um, settler, you know, colony over uh, Zimbabwe? Why was that not recognized? Rhodesia is identical to South Africa. The difference is the difference in how they solved it. The Mugabe people, remember Mugabe in Rhodesia, which became known as, um, uh, I forgot now, what was the new name? Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Yeah, correct. Thank you. Remember, there were different guerrilla movements in that country. One was supported by the Soviet Union. One was supported by the Maoist Chinese. The one who actually won out was the one by the Maoist Chinese, Mugabe. He was not pro-Soviet. He was pro-Maoist China. His policies were different. Nelson Mandela was a member of the communist movement. Remember that. He was pro-Soviet. Their policies were different. The way they did it in South Africa and the way seconds. they did it in Rhodesia was totally different. They were both the same situation of settler states, etc. But look at the difference between the way the communists solved it and the way the Maoist ultra-left, the radicals solved it. Thank you. Because what, what, what was the difference? 
I mean, you know, yeah, what was the specific? The difference was that in South Africa, they changed the government and they had new policies. In in Rhodesia, they changed the government to a government that was anti-white. They based it on racial things. Mugabe, if you know, study the policies of Mugabe, um, you'll see they were very different than Nelson Mandela, like night and day. But I don't want to go into that in this class. Uh, yeah, I read the same article that uh, read about Gordotsky. He's a Tel Aviv. It appears that uh, with his name um, that he's probably a Russian Jew. We don't know. I don't know. However, what I read in there was that, again, as I had stated previously, uh, the, sta the statements I made before, in that article, uh, Stalin is portrayed as still trying to go along with Roosevelt. They're very close. So he tried to keep the fact that we needed a um, Palestine that had both Arabs and Jews in equality. So that was it. Now, push comes to shove. Again, as I mentioned before, uh, Israel, I'm sorry, uh, Brits and Americans were vying to keep the whole Palestinian state as a trusteeship so they could um, go in there and take care of the oil just like the Brits had done for 30 years. Stalin knew this. So with him... He started saying, okay, that's why he said to Gromyko, we got to at least put in front of the United Security uh, Council that we really just need the two peoples to get, to, uh, get along together. But he understood that if that didn't work, he needed I, to I, go I, with a student, with a, uh, um, what do you call it, a two-state solution to get rid of the British mandate. So it's not like he was duped. He knew what he was doing, and his primary strategic goal was to make sure there was no trusteeship or mandate associated with Palestine. Yeah, so I want to preface this by saying that I support the two-state solution, but I think that there is a big difference between dialectically recognizing the current material practicality of the two-state solution in 2023 and saying that Stalin was in the right, that he had correct policies on Israel in 1948. The Zionists were in much less of a position of power in 1948 than they are in 2023. Likewise, I think there's a big difference between believing in a two-state solution as a means to an ends, as I believe most of our party and most of the current world communist movement does, and believing that Israel has an intrinsic or inherent right to exist. I wanted to speak on Rhodesia, and then I wanted to speak on another thing that was mentioned. So on the question of Rhodesia, one thing that people don't talk about is that there were two countries that when Rhodesia was at its very last days, its very last years, right? 
the United States was sanctioning Rhodesia, the Soviet Union was, China was, right? There were two countries that had still recognized Rhodesia at that point. The United Kingdom and Israel. And even the United Kingdom stopped supporting Rhodesia. It was Israel who supported both apartheid South Africa and Rhodesia until the very end. So just think about that. Because when we're talking, when Angelo says that it's comparable to the apartheid government, even the Israelis themselves knew that ending apartheid in South Africa the way it ended would set a precedent that soon it would eventually have to end in Israel too, right? So my point is is that. The other thing is that when you look at the current geopolitical realities, we have to, like, I personally think, I agree with Scott Ritter's analysis when he says the two-state solution is the only pragmatic solution. If you're talking from a pragmatic standpoint, then yes, I understand that. But we can pragmatic, we can understand the pragmatic geopolitical realities, which I understand, without being necessarily wedded to labor Zionism, without being wedded to, without necessarily being wedded to a two-state solution permanently. And the last thing I wanted to say is that we can recognize the geopolitical realities without without apologizing for the mistakes that labor Zionists have made and that we are not labor Zionists. Thank you. Yeah, I, I want to cycle back uh, to a bit, bit of Bijan really quick because uh, the Soviet Union uh, and the, the Russian uh, SSR, in the way that they applied uh, the uh, material conditions to the autonomous region, uh, they did so in a remarkable way in which, uh, as D. Bergelson writes it, in uh, the Jewish autonomous region, uh, their home, uh, there being the Jews, their home is the entire Soviet Union, from the Pacific Ocean to the Baltic Sea, and from the Arctic to the Black Sea. Every citizen, whether worker, peasant, engineer, doctor, or artist, is as welcome, useful, and at home in any part of the Soviet Union as he is in the Republic or autonomous region of his own nationality. Uh, this is the concept of proletarian, proletarian internationalism in the sense of you have a established either autonomous region or state, what what be it, whether it be under uh, the uh, under the uh, the Russian SSR or any part of the world for that matter, then you have uh, there a sense of belonging for the people who hailed from there, either ethnically or elsewhere, or or, or uh, as it pertains to religion, as in the Jewish example. So you have that, and you also have it to where the Soviet Union said this is. This entire nation, this being the union, the union of socialist uh, republics, this is your homeland. From as he said, from the from the uh, all the way from from the far east, all the way to uh, to to Ukraine. That is all I have to say. Yes, comrade. So, was there ever a single multinational state in Palestine for Arabs, Jews, Christians? The answer is, there was, for 600 years. Except it wasn't a state, it was just a province of the Ottoman Empire. They lived in harmony and peace, just like Birabijan, except not under socialism, obviously. Okay? So, 
my idea is that for the future, yeah, there is, uh, there, there will be two states, right? Our goal would be to de-Zionize the state of Israel, just like in Ukraine, to mm -hmm. denazification, right? Okay, so a state of Israel that is de-Zionized, you know what it's like? It's Palestine, like it was for Second. 600 years. That's all. And it'll be called Palestine. And everybody will live together. All these different religions and nationalities and all that. It will not be an ethnic religious state. It will be a secular, multinational, democratic state. That's all, comrade. That's what we hope for. And we will end our class tonight with a um, the International in Hebrew lyrics. So, and go ahead. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.